Please turn in your Bibles to Acts chapter 16. Acts chapter 16, verses 1 through 5. Hear the Word of God. Then he came to Derbe and Lystra, and behold, a certain disciple was there named Timothy, the son of a certain Jewish woman who believed, but his father was Greek. He was well spoken of by the brethren who were at Lystra and Iconium. Paul wanted to have him go on with him, and he took him and circumcised him because of the Jews who were in that region, for they all knew that his father was Greek. And as they went through the cities, they delivered to them the decrees to keep, which were determined by the apostles and elders at Jerusalem. So the churches were strengthened in the faith and increased in number daily. Amen. Father, we thank you for your word. I pray that uh, you would uh, quicken this word to our hearts, that you would sanctify us by your word. You would enable us in our thoughts, our words, our actions to glorify you uh, as we go from this place. We I uh, pray that you would enable me to clearly uh, bring uh, this word to you, that you would overcome uh, the, the weakness of my own flesh. And we thank you, Father, for this privilege that we have of worshiping you in our responses. In Christ's name, amen. You may be seated. <clears throat> Anytime you have a predominantly pagan society, the church is going to, if it's reaching out at all to the society, is going to have to deal with people like Timothy and like Timothy's mom. His mom was uh, a believer who was married to an unbeliever. Uh, we know from 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 5, his mother's name was Eunice, and his mother's mother's name was Lois, and they actually both had the same issue. They both uh, were believers married uh, to unbelievers. And Paul reached out to people like this and included them in his churches, helped them to break out of their cycles. Now, both sets of parents were in a partnership that was not equal. We speak of that as being unequally yoked. And yet, 1 Corinthians chapter 7 indicates it's a partnership they had to be committed to. Okay, They could not just bail out of that. And Paul made sure that rather than isolating such people, he welcomed them in, the church affirmed to them, uh, and, and uh, sought to minister to them. To me, this indicates that uh, Paul's churches were not perfectionistic. If you look at the various churches, you'll see that there were divorced people in the churches. There were people in those churches who had been converted out of paganism, and they were polygamists. They had uh, various wives. Now, they couldn't be elders, uh, so there was a higher standard that was given for eldership, and it was clearly a sin. You weren't supposed to get married any more wives once you became a believer, but... He was not perfectionistic. He reached out. He realized these people needed to be ministered to as well. And they needed some place in which they could minister. And he provided uh, the opportunities for that. And I believe this passage is a great corrective to some of the perfectionism that certain churches sometimes have. I think it's also a great encouragement to those who have found themselves unequally yoked, whether it's through their fault or through no fault of their own. I have a relative who was involved in a very similar predicament. Uh, she got married to an unbeliever, but was actually fooled into, and you might wonder, how in the world could she be fooled into marrying an unbeliever? Well, uh, she had newly emigrated from Germany, did not speak the language very well, was part of a church, and was away from her parents, uh, trying to earn some money to help the family farm stay afloat. And uh, there was this 
you know, man who wanted to marry her. He was a regular attender at the church, professed to be a Christian, uh, was part of the choir. And uh, because he seemed like an upright person, she went ahead and married, and the parents, by distance, gave permission to that. And as soon as uh, they were married, he quit going to church. He said, well, I'm not a Christian. The only reason I was going to church was to find a godly, submissive wife. And uh, uh, he was a drunk, and she had a really tough life. And the, the, the neat thing about the church is the ability to come alongside of people like that and to support them, to encourage them, to help them out through the struggles that they're facing without putting undue expectations upon them because there was only so far that she was able to go given her circumstances. There was another partnership in this passage that's quite different from marriage. A marriage, obviously, is a a lifetime commitment. It's a permanent partnership. And so, in one sense, it's not even fair to compare that with the partnership that Paul enters into with Timothy. But I think there are lessons that we can learn when we compare and when we contrast those two kinds of partnerships. Uh, Paul enters into a ministry relationship with Timothy that ends up being a lifelong friendship and a partnership in ministry that is perfectly yoked. There is a perfect yoking going on there. Now, a yoke, for you younger people who don't know about that, it's a great big wooden beam that was kind of put onto oxen that they would wear around their neck and it would help to pull the plow. And if you were in that yoke, you can't get out of it. Now, if it's a marriage, you can't ever get out of it unless there is a, a specific you know, adultery or something like that. But uh, some relationships, at least for a period of time, you cannot get out of that yoking. And if you're unequally yoked, it means one of the oxen is pulling all of the weight. It's not, they're not harnessed up um, the, the way that they should be. And as we examine these two partnerships, I think you'll see principles that can apply to business and politics and marriage and to other situations. But for sure, I, uh, it's my desire that this gives us a handle on how we can help single moms and, and people who are uh, yoked in a similar way that Lois and Eunice were. Uh, whether it's through their own fault or uh, through someone else's fault. Now, the first thing I want to look at is why being unequally yoked is so dangerous and is such a difficulty for these people to be bearing. It's true that Eunice had a happy outcome from her situation. At least one of her children became a, a believer, but it's not the ideal. We're going to look, first of all, at six dangers that can happen when we're unequally yoked and then three answers of God's grace Uh, that can minister in the midst of that situation. We're going to start with verse 1. Then he came to Derbe and Lystra. First thing that we see here is this is a rather strange place for a Jewess to be because these two cities are on the farthest fringes of the Roman Empire, long ways from Jerusalem for sure, but a long ways from any Jewish uh, community. Uh, There were not... If there were other Jews here, there were not enough Jews to be able to make a synagogue. Uh, Even in chapter 14, when the Jews came and stoned them in Lystra, they came from 100 miles away. None of them were living in the city, if you remember from what we discussed in chapter 14. And so when Timothy's great-grandfather moved here, he may or he may not have had any idea and probably was unaware of the incredibly negative influence that would happen when he moves to an area where there are very few, if any, fellow believing Jews. Uh, 2 Timothy 1.5 indicates that Grandma Lois was a believing and a practicing Jewess. 
And so it's almost certain that great-grandpa was at least a practicing Jew. He at least pretended to have the faith if he did not have the faith. So the question is, why did he come here? Way away from any other Jews. Was it a great business opportunity? We're not told. But I think we can confidently say it was a bad move on his part, given the outcome that happened with his children. When a Christian husband moves to a new area, his first thought should be to the spiritual welfare of his family. How is this move going to affect my children? How will it affect uh, my wife? His first thought should not be, oh, wonderful, I'm going to get double the salary, you know, if I move to that town. Uh, what is the good of having a great salary if you're going to end up losing your children? Uh, many people do not think about the church that's going to be in a city when they make a job career uh, change. And I think the first question we ought to ask is, is there a good church in that city that I'm going to be moving to? I would quit my job rather than move to an area where there was not going to be any good Christian fellowship. Anyway, somewhere along the line, great-grandpa must have consented to marrying his daughter Lois off to a person who was not a believer. I think we can deduce that much from First Timothy, excuse me, Second Timothy chapter 1, verse 5. And so Eunice, the mother of Timothy, has an unbelieving father. She also ends up having an unbelieving husband. And what this does is that it has, at least he's not practicing his faith if he was, if he was a believer. And with an unbelieving husband, other priorities come into place that move the woman far from the influence of family and church. Now, at first, that may seem like a neat provision if a person's in rebellion against the Lord. I don't need to face up to you know, accountability to other Christians. But over time, it becomes a terrible burden on their shoulders. And it may not be a physical distance like Lois and Eunice had. They were physically separated from uh, other Jews. But probably the situation is going to be where the husband involves them in activities where it makes it difficult to fellowship with believers. It makes it difficult to go to church. But you can count on it. Being unequally yoked is going to bring some distance from God's people. So that's the first problem. Second problem is the continued unbelief of the person that you marry. Verse 1 goes on to say, And behold, a certain disciple was there named Timothy, the son of a certain Jewish woman who believed, but his father was a Greek. The but is contrasting him with her belief and practice. She was a believer, but he was a Greek. Uh, how many times have I seen a young girl marry a, against all advice, marry a person that she has been dating uh, who is an unbeliever with the thought, he'll change, he'll become a believer over time, and it almost never works that way. In fact, from the people that I have known who have gotten married to an unbeliever, I've never seen any of the cases where it has worked out that they have become uh, believers. Timothy is a grown man. And many people believe he's in his 30s at this point, And his father is still not a believer. And some people say, well, Pastor Kaiser gave some statistics that are pretty encouraging in Acts chapter 2 that uh, when a man, marry, uh, you know, a, a man comes to Christ, uh, uh, that in 93% of the cases, uh, the whole family comes to Christ. So why not just get married to this unbeliever and she'll come along in time, she'll believe in time, but really, those are quite different things. Let me give you the statistics I gave back then. In Acts 2, I pointed out 
One of the reasons why Paul constantly was addressing the men in the congregation and the men in society when he was preaching, when the child, a child is the first one in the family to come to Christ, there is a 3.5% probability that the rest of the family will come to Christ. This is statistics over the last 50 years in America and in other countries. 3.5%, pretty low statistical probability for those who are really intent on child evangelism fellowship and things like that. When the woman is the first one in the family to come to Christ, there is a 17% probability that the rest of the family will come to Christ. And if the man is the first one who comes to Christ, there's a 93% probability that the rest of the family will come to Christ. And so this is where people get some comfort. They say, well, you know, all I have to do is get married to this person. 93% probability she's going to come along. We'll live happily ever after. And I really love this woman. Why not get married? But there was a huge difference between uh, rebelling against God by marrying somebody that the Bible says you ought not to marry and two pagans, uh, one of whom becomes a Christian. Totally different scenario. And I believe that the statistics, and I haven't been able to find them, but people have indicated it is a far lesser influence when you've gone off and rebelled against the Lord deliberately. Far lesser. And so even the 17% for women... And the 93% on the man's side is unlikely to happen. Now, there is hope. We'll get to the hope section. But I'm just pointing out the dangers here for people who think, you know, it's not really a big problem uh, being having a mixed marriage. Timothy is older, yet his dad is still an unbeliever. You can expect the same will happen today. Third danger is that pagan and Christian cultures often clash or get mixed together in an unhealthy way. And the technical word for that is syncretism. It's a mixture of, uh, of things that really should not mix. Verse 1 again, a certain Jewish woman who believed, but his father was a Greek. Now, I want you to notice, it doesn't just say that his father was an unbeliever. The word but implies that he's an unbeliever. That was point number two. There is a contrast between her belief and his being a Greek, but he doesn't use the word unbeliever. He uses the word Greek. It says, but his father was a Greek. So what he's doing is he's setting up a an explanation as to why it was that Timothy was not circumcised in uh, verses 2 and 3. If you've done any study of the Greeks and if you've read any history of the Maccabees, you will know that the Greeks despised circumcision. So, what you have here is you've got a Jewish culture and a Greek culture in the same home and automatically there's going to be all kinds of tensions that are brought into that home. Tensions over uh, differences like uh, food and rituals and Sabbath days and hygiene and dress code. and uh, There's just a whole host of things that would be coming into conflict. And here's the interesting thing, and this gives us hope for later on in this uh, sermon. The text indicates that Eunice was a practicing Jewess, which means that this Greek father had allowed her to import an enormous amount of her Jewish culture into the home. Uh, she was able to get away with it. Not all Greek fathers would, be, would have been willing to do that, uh, but uh, she was allowed to do that. That meant she did not eat pork, um, wore only certain kinds of clothing, practiced purification measures, followed other ceremonial laws. But um, not all pagans would have been as generous. But here's the point. Getting married to an unbeliever automatically sets up one of two things, either cultural differences that will bring tension into the home or compromise on the part of one or both of the partners. 
and that brings up an important side point. Uh, just as a pagan, if he got converted to the Lord in the Old Testament uh, and became a Jew, he would have immediately faced all kinds of cultural changes, adjustments that he would have had to make. This is the way it should be with a Christian. Sadly, it is not. Too many times Christians have a very pietistic view that the only thing Christianity is about is the salvation of my soul. You know, it's a ticket to heaven. But God's Word was designed to bring changes in the way we think, how we work, how we view ownership of property, our attitudes to rights and values, our treatment of women, our sexual practices, our views on politics, our attitudes to the, to the future. There's so many things that it should affect. Let me just give you one illustration, uh, and that's the area of feminism. Our, our culture is a very feministic culture nowadays. And many Christians have no idea of the degree to which they have been influenced in their families and in their churches by their culture. And the reason for it is they are not self-consciously realizing we have separate cultures. There's the Christian culture. There's the pagan culture. In fact, many times they're embarrassed by the, uh, the, the, the difference if they are aware of the difference. But they're certainly not highlighting it. Now, that's just one area, feminism. You multiply that a hundred times and you have a little bit of a picture of the kind of conflicts and tensions that will come into a household when an unbeliever is importing all of his cultural views and practices and values and the Christians trying to import into the family all of his Christian views and practices. Can you see the tension that is there? And what many times happens is that the believer gets dragged down over time. He's tired of the tension, or she is tired of the tension over time. That did not happen here. This woman retained her Jewishness. She chose to live as a Jew should live, and it would have been extremely difficult. And so I think she stands as a rebuke to us when we have two Christians in a family, and we're still living like Greeks. Okay? We're, we're, we should have it easier doing it that way, but she is trying to maintain her Jewishness uh, whatever the situation was, whether she had been married off against her will or whether she got into it on her, on, on her own, uh, we're not sure. So I think we can learn from her on that. The fourth danger is that the unbeliever can easily undo what the Christian spouse is trying to do. One of the ladies in my dad's church up in North Vancouver explained how this had happened to her. When she was younger, she knew she shouldn't marry an unbeliever, but she had already been dating this guy and her heart was already wrapped up in his. And he was sweet-talking her and saying, hey, I believe in God too, and I'm not going to stop you from going to church or your kids from going to church. No problems. And he did keep his word. She went ahead and married him. And, you know, they were allowed to go to church. But here's what happened. Um, he would always set up the fun activities right during church time. And he said to the kids, yeah, you can go to church, no problem, or you can go fishing with me if you want, or you can go to church or go to the theme park or go to church and go swimming. And so... You know, they would go to church and he would go off and do his fun thing. Then they'd feel bad. So the next week they'd stay home and he didn't go anywhere. And the next week they'd go to church and he'd go to the theme park. And so they would start staying home so that they could go to the theme park or wherever he was going. And he wooed their hearts away and uh, kept this woman from being, being able to raise these children in the fear of the Lord the way that, that uh, she really wanted to do. Now, that's not the way it usually happens. Uh, that was very deliberate. Usually, it's unconscious. They're not even intending to undermine in any way like that. I watched uh, a number of years ago a Laurel and Hardy movie. It was back in 1932 called The Piano. 
where Laurel and Hardy are taking this piano up a big flight of steps, and you can just imagine all of the antics. It takes them all afternoon to get this piano up there. They finally get it into the room, and when they're in the room, um, Hardy is trying to neaten up, and he's taken all of the pieces of wood, neatly stacking them on this side, and then Laurel comes over, sees the wood over here, and he's taking it over and neatly stacking it on the other side, and they're constantly undoing, without even realizing it, what the other person is doing. That's what happens in mixed marriages. It's many times unconscious, but they're at odds not realizing that uh, there is these underlying different assumptions that are going on. <clears throat> in this particular story, we have only one example of that here, and it's very deliberate. Eunice, as a Jew, would have wanted to have her son circumcised. His father refused. So what could she do? But there were no doubt many areas like that where his influence was felt. Okay, a fifth danger that is uh, uh, frequently uh, present is that children are not able to join the church and partake of the Lord's table. Verse 2, he was well spoken of by the brethren who were at Lystra and Iconium. Paul wanted to have him go with him, and he took him and circumcised him because of the Jews who were in that region, for they all knew that his father was Greek. And by region, he's referring to the Phrygian district, possibly as far as the Galatian province that they were going to be going through. Uh, he was probably a businessman who would travel through these areas. He would be networked with all of the other uh, Jews in that region. So he's not talking about Lystra. But if you compare uh, what we've just read here with 2 Timothy 3.15, you know that Timothy believed in God from the time that he was a child. Uh, he's now you know, upwards of maybe in his 30s by now. And he's in the church. You don't have to be circumcised to be in the church. He's a full-orbed, baptized member of the church. But what I'm going to be referring to is not what's now, what was years before any church was established in this area. When he was a kid, Paul says he was a believer. Okay? And yet, he was not circumcised. That's the issue that we are uh, going to uh, look at. He was an Old Testament type believer. Now, if he was not circumcised, that meant he was not allowed any of the privileges of the synagogue. Uh, none of the privileges of being a Jew. He certainly could not partake of the Passover. He probably would have been considered to be a God-fearer, but uh, many Gentiles were considered in that, in that category. Now, if you realize that circumcision was the sign of admission into the covenant of grace, you will see how irregular this was. Let me read to you from Genesis 17, 12 through 14. He who is eight days old among you shall be circumcised, every male child in your generations. He who is born in your house or bought with money from any stranger who is not your descendant, he who is born in your house and he who is bought with your money must be circumcised, and my covenant shall be in your flesh for an everlasting covenant. And the uncircumcised male child who is not circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin, that person shall be cut off from his people. He has broken my covenant." So outwardly, Timothy was a covenant breaker. Okay? He was cut off from the people of God, cut off from those covenant privileges, and yet Paul said he was still a true believer. There would have been a lot of pressure from the Jews probably to have him circumcised, but he wasn't. And I think the only conclusion you can come to is that his father absolutely refused. It's just inconceivably conceivable to me that the mother as God-fearing as she was, that she would not have wanted her son to be in covenant with the Lord. They had been drilled into their consciousness, the circumcision issue. And so, 
This is just another indication of the dangers of being unequally yoked. The likelihood is that children will not be able to be members of the church. Uh, The last danger of being unequally yoked is that the parents can often perpetuate the same cycle into the next generation. doesn't have to, but it can easily happen. 2 Timothy 1.5 says, When I call to remembrance the genuine faith that is in you, which dwelt first in your grandmother Lois and your mother Eunice. Uh, Lois was married to an unbeliever and her daughter does exactly the same thing. Ezekiel 16.44 speaks of unbelieving parents passing on their unbelieving ways with this expression, like mother, like daughter. You probably heard that expression, like mother, like daughter. Uh, you're always doing just like, uh, like uh, your mother. Uh, well, the Scripture uses it to show how easy it is for daughters to pick up on their parents' bad habits. Not determined, but it can very easily happen. A number of years ago, I heard one of the parents uh, tell about how their kids had been uh, yelling at each other in the other room, and one of them had gotten on their case, stop it, cut it out. And one of the children said, but we were just playing mommy and daddy. <laughs> and they were thinking, oh, great. <clears throat> you know, what kind of an influence that we've been having on these kids. And I'm sure you've experienced that yourself where the kids so quickly pick up on our bad habits. We think, oh boy, have I been doing that? Yes, I have. And uh, they, they just imitate. They follow what you were doing. Now, Eunice may not have had any choice since marriages were often arranged uh, by the Greeks, by the fathers, but certainly I think this is a danger we need to be aware of. And we need to be in prayer and be very encouraging to mothers who find themselves in this kind of a circumstance because being a Proverbs 31 woman, it's hard enough when you have all the support in the world, but when you don't have the support, it is so much more difficult. And so we need to honor them, we need to pray, and pray that God's grace would bust into their lives and uh, impact them powerfully. There was a remarkable grace that was breaking through into the life of Lois, uh, into Eunice, and down into Timothy's life. And God's grace can overcome these disadvantages. Uh, You may have come from an abusive background, maybe a lawless background, and yet you do not have to be determined by your background. God's grace is powerful to change. His grace is powerful to enable us uh, to persevere. And if you just think of their background, I think you'll understand this. Uh, Anybody who's done much reading in the Greeks, you know that it was a very um, uh, polytheistic, immoral society. Chapter 14, Paul had gotten stoned there. But prior to getting stoned, remember that they were worshiping them as gods? Uh, These people were very idolatrous. They took their idolatry far more seriously than most of Rome did. And yet, despite the background uh, there, uh, mother and daughter, both were virtuous, both believed the Scriptures, and both taught them to the the children. And God can make us to overcome, be overcomers in the midst of the most adverse of circumstances. So the first point really is there is hope. Uh, There is hope for for us. God's grace is sufficient and Proverbs... I mean, uh, 1 Corinthians 7 probably was kicking in, keeping the man from being worse than he could have become. A second encouraging point in their lives can be seen in the names that are given to Eunice and Timothy. Eunice literally means blessing and victory from you and Nikkei. Eunike is the, the Greek pronunciation of that. 
Lois was a woman asking for God's blessing and God's victory to shine through her situation. And then she names her son Timothy, which means a dear to God or beloved of the Lord. And so she is basically laying claim to God's promises to be passed from generation to generation. And this holds true even when just one member of the home is a believer. 1 Corinthians 7 says that the unbelieving husband is sanctified by the wife. The unbelieving wife is sanctified by the husband. Otherwise, your children would be unclean, but now they are holy. Now, we're not told if uh, the husbands of Lois and Eunice became believers. We're only told about Timothy. But here's what uh, 1 Corinthians 7 goes on to say. It tells them, don't divorce your wife, uh, your, your husband. It says, for how do you know, O wife, whether you will save your husband? Or how do you know, O husband, whether you will save your wife? See, God's grace invades the family. The moment there's one person in that family who is a believer and uh, they can lay claim to God's promises on behalf of their children, we see the promises being lived out. Eunice, you know, the, the, the daughter becomes saved and then the Lois sees her grandson, Timothy, becoming saved as, as well. And so Christian homes can have faith in that generational promise. Malachi 2 warns us, don't take it for granted and don't excuse your sin based on that because God's not going to bring it to fruition. But I think this gives us hope. If we have faith in God's promises, uh, we can have a confidence He will uh, bring it to pass at some point. There was a mother who was telling her little girl about life on the farm when she was growing up. And she said, you know, we had lots of fun on the farm. We had this big old tire that was tied onto the oak tree and we'd swing on that and we uh, would slide down the haystack and take rides on the sleigh in the wintertime. And there was lots of fun on the farm. And as she began describing this, her daughter was very interested and she said, I sure wish I'd met you, met you sooner. <laughs> and uh, sometimes because we're not sharing our faith with our families as we, we could, it's almost like our kids have not met us. We've got this spiritual heritage that's been passed on to us. We're supposed to be passing that on to our children aggressively, passing on a worldview to them. Uh, sometimes children will not embrace God's promises till much later in life, but we as parents need to lay claim to them, even if the statistics are against us. Lay claim to the promise. Where there is faith, God's the giver of faith, uh, the, the, the promise will come to fruition. Third principle is that God's grace is stronger than paganism. And it can enable a person to break out of the cycle. And in this particular case, it was the third generation that made the greatest strides in breaking out of that cycle. As you know, Timothy was a, a great church leader. There were two books of the Bible that were written to him. Paul was so close to Timothy, he said that he was his son. You know, Timothy was my, my son in the faith. But Timothy is an example where bad influence from previous generations can be broken off in one generation and the good influences can be progressively built upon over generations. It is paganism to fatalistically think that we have to repeat the mistakes of our parents. It, 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 that is a pagan concept. Now you say, Pastor Kaiser, you just quoted like mother, like daughter. But that passage, like mother, like daughter, was being quoted about unbelievers. It does not apply to believers who are being conformed to the image of Christ from glory to glory. And so there is a difference. We're supposed to be able to stand on our parents' shoulders and go beyond where they've ever been able to go. You know, if every generation 
has to start off at the same place the previous generation did. There's never going to be progress. This is the basis of building a dynasty. It is a, uh, uh, it's progressive. Uh, you'll never build a dynasty if you make your children start off where you did. Some people say, well, I had it tough when I was younger. I'm going to make sure my kids, they, they're going to learn character, you know. And I think this applies to uh, finances. Every generation should be financially a step ahead of the previous generation if you're going to be successful in building a spiritual dynasty. Every generation should be ahead of where you have been in terms of how they courted and how they are teaching their kids and the kind of theology they have. There needs to be this advancement generation by generation. Now, how did God break them out of the cycle? I see two hints in their lives of the means that He used. It's the Word of God and that Word being lived out by way of testimony. Uh, please, why don't you just go ahead and turn with me to 2 Timothy 3, where we see Eunice using the power of God's Word in her son's life. She's got a confidence that this Word is going to do something in my son's life. It is a power that even goes beyond the baby's understanding of it as she speaks the Word into her baby's life. Okay, 2 Timothy 3, verse 15. Paul tells Timothy that from childhood you have known the Holy Scriptures which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith which is in Christ Jesus. Now, just look at the Scriptures first. The Scriptures are powerful for transforming a person's life. They have a power that goes way beyond our words or our actions. Uh, It's the power of God uh, that that is at work at us. It's, it's, uh, how does he word it? It's sharp, uh, powerful sharper than any two-edged sword, you know, piercing down into the person's life. And in the context of these verses here, the next verses, it appears that Eunice used the Scriptures for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction of righteousness, so that her son could be a man who was complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work. So when Paul met Timothy in Acts 16, verse 2, it says he was well spoken of by the brethren who were at Lystra and Iconium. Now, Paul taught him too, but where was the primary teaching? It was in the home. If you think that the church is going to do all the teaching your kids need, you are sadly mistaken. 99% of the teaching needs to come from the home. We reinforce. You know, we dovetail together with what you're doing. But it needs to be from the home. Now, when did this begin? It's It's a really cool word here. The Greek word that is translated as childhood has as its dictionary meaning unborn child or embryo. Very rarely it is also used of a newborn infant. It's never used beyond a newborn infant. It's the word brephos. This is the word that was used when it talked about John the Baptist leaping in his mother's womb for joy. Now, joy is a rational concept. Uh, you, You can't have joy without some kind of rationality. There's many verses like that that indicate that there are babies. They're not just you know, no brain waves, nothing going on. These babies are able to think. And what is going on here is it says that from the time that this baby was in the womb, an unborn uh, embryo, she was bringing the Word of God to bear in his life. Now, some people have thought that infants can learn even the rudiments of language within the womb. They can't speak because they don't have any practice of speaking, uh, no airways or anything like that. But when they hear music, they've done different tests. When they hear music being played, these uh, children are able to pick up uh, 
uh, music much more easily as they grow up. And when they hear beat and when they hear language, they think that there is some connection there. Now, whether this proves that or not, I'm not going to say, but I think it is absolutely clear from this Scripture there was never a time in Timothy's life when the Word of God was not being breathed into his life. He was constantly in the atmosphere of that Word. And for sure, the Word was shaping how um, Eunice was saying, how should I raise this baby? How should I discipline? How should I feed? How should I schedule? The Word of God was being brought to bear in that baby's life. Uh, there was a mother who actually took this very, very seriously and daily was reading the Bible, reading stories to her newborn baby. And a visitor came along and thought, this looks kind of weird. You really think that that baby can understand what you were saying? And she says, uh, said to her, I'm sure he doesn't understand now, but I want his earliest memories to be that of hearing God's Word. And I like that. I think that's something that we should we should take up. There should never be a time when our children are outside of the atmosphere of God's Word. It has an influence on them. I mean, this Word can sanctify us. It can have a, a power in our lives even beyond what we are able to understand. That's one of the reasons why we have infants and little children in the worship. You say, they can't understand a thing. Why would they be in worship? They're in the atmosphere of God's Word. And there should never be a time when they don't understand and know you know, their earliest memory is, yeah, God's Word was a part of my life. That's what, that, that's what we should aspire to. And I do want to point out that the father is the head of the home, is the one who is the primary responsibility. He's, he's accountable before God to make sure he washes his wife with the water of the Word through family worship and through bringing the Word to bear, that he's uh, taking care and nurturing his children in the Word. But the women are going to have many more hours with their children than the men are. So they're going to have to be teaching as well. And if it wasn't for the woman, he would not have been taught anything. So both. It's a team, it's a team work that's going together. Now, the second hint for why Lois and Eunice uh, were able to overcome their circumstances can be seen in 2 Timothy 1 and verse 5, where Paul speaks of the genuine faith that is in you which dwelt first in your grandmother Lois and your mother Eunice, and I am persuaded is in you also. Now, the word for genuine there means unhypocritical. Unhypocritical. Uh, Great-grandpa may have had an outward faith, but Lois had an unhypocritical faith. It was a sincere faith. It was a genuine faith. They lived what they believed. And so this speaks of the actions of faith. If you read Hebrews chapter 11, all of the, uh, the faith descriptions there are not just inward faith, it's faith actions, right? And so that's an unhypocritical faith that's being lived out. And that can have a powerful impact upon your children. Uh, when I was growing up, my parents taught me a lot, had a huge influence just through their teaching, but I think it was their actions that most profoundly shaped my life because I could see they really believed and they really lived out what they believed. I didn't see hypocrisy that turned me off. A lot of kids grow up and they're just turned off from the faith because they see the hypocrisy of their parents. So it's the Word being brought to bear in, their, in the children's lives and we are seeking to the best of our ability to live it out and we're not being hypocritical in hiding our sin because that's part of God's Word. It says we have sin, right? What do we do with our sin? We bring it before the grace of God. So I'm not talking about 
being perfect. I'm talking about being unhypocritical, living with sincerity the faith before our children. And it is when we do that and our kids see this being lived out, uh, we have hope for change and for building a spiritual dynasty. Now, moving on to the second partnership, and we're just going to go flying through this section here. It, it was um, the genuineness of Timothy's faith that made Paul want to enter into a partnership with him. Verse 1 says he was a disciple, but 2 Timothy says he had a genuine, he had an unhypocritical faith. This is a must for partnership and ministry. Now, a lot of people will say, of course, in the church, you know, that's a given. You're going to have uh, unhypocritical faith. Well, that's not a given. There's compromises in the church just like there are in families. And uh, a case in point is um, one of the uh, Orthodox Presbyterian churches up in San Francisco, and they don't mind my telling you this because they've repented of this long ago, but um, what, what happened with them, this is the church that you've probably heard in the news from time to time that's gotten firebombed, and the homosexuals just hate this church because they now have been really engaging in a ministry, seeking to reclaim homosexuals for Christ. And so uh, they disrupt service. They, they do all kinds of terrible stuff. But here's what happened. Initially, uh, they, they had a hard time finding an organist, and so they rationalized. You know, an organist is just a skill, sort of like being a janitor and different things like that. So we don't really need to have a believer, and there's no way we're going to get an organist. And this guy's a fantastic organist, so let's go ahead and hire him. So they had an unbeliever who was playing the organ for the worship service. And just keep in mind all the scriptures that talk about the worship of the unbelievers being as an abomination before the Lord. But anyway, they didn't consider that at this time. And uh, for a while, everything seemed like it was hunky-dory. But then he started aggressively telling people, you know, he's a homosexual. And they thought, boy, this is like, this is too much. They fired him. And that's when the protests and the... Uh, the graffiti on the walls and all kinds of horrible things that these guys have gone through, the firebombing uh, started to go on. And they had to rethink their ministry and their policies because the court cases made them more consistent. And they said, well, the treasurer needs to be founded on faith. And the janitor, everybody needs to because the court was making them. They said, well, that's being legalistic. But you need to ask, if it is a partnership that you've entered into, how can two walk together unless they are agreed? Faith really should be the foundation for our partnerships, whether it's in business or elsewhere. Now, that doesn't mean you can't deal with unbelievers or sell things to them or you know, engage in trading and things like that. I'm talking about full partnerships. Now, the second thing that we see is that Timothy was commended by the church. Verse 2 says, He was well spoken of by the brethren. On any partnership, it is wise to get counsel from other believers before you make a decision. That's one of the reasons that we are following the courtship model in our families because you've got at least four objective parents that are involved in helping to, hopefully they're not blinded by emotions as well, but hopefully there's some, uh, some extra input uh, being commended by the brethren. This is one of the reasons why... Uh, when we have deacons or elders coming in, we want the brethren to give their commendation. That's why you vote on it. This is why I have to bring credentials when I come to a presbytery. <clears throat> I think in any case, we can easily make mistakes on partnerships, just like my relative did, if we don't have um, investigation and, um, and help, commendation from others. 
Third thing that made this partnership work out great is that someone was in charge. Verse 3 says, Paul wanted to have him go with him, and he took him. Paul's obviously the leader there. He's the senior. There's a senior and a junior relationship. Someone was in charge. I, I knew, um, actually, one of my relatives had um, a business partnership with a person, but they did not write things out. There was no clear cut of who's responsible to do what. Nobody's in charge. And they had constant conflict. It was just, it was so difficult to know because they couldn't come to agreement. There was not any line of authority. So it does make it very, very awkward. A lot of frustrations. Fourth thing that made this such a good partnership is that Timothy was a perfect fit for Paul's team. Now, I'm not a perfect fit for every team. And you're not a perfect fit for every team. There could be an elder, Presbyterian elder, who is a great fit for another church in this city but would not be a good fit for this ministry team because he's in such disagreement with some of the things we consider fundamental distinctives of our church. Uh, and so the idea of... I think anytime you enter into a partnership, you, you need to ask, are we in agreement on at least fundamental issues? Do we complement one another in the way in which we think, in the way in which we act? Uh, I think that's a, a whole purpose for courtship, to find that out. It's not enough to have a husband and a wife connect on a romantic level. Now, you've got to discuss worldviews and personalities and, and uh, practices. Those all should be discussed. Now, on the other hand, some people think we can only have a partnership if we're total agreement on everything and if we have total likenesses on everything. You could not get more different backgrounds and upbringings than Paul and Timothy had, and yet they're a perfect match. Boy, it was, it was incredible, the differences. Even their personalities were different. 2 Timothy 1.7 indicates that Timothy had a weakness of timidity. You don't find a shred of timidity in Paul. <laughs> you know, here's an anxious, fearful person, and Paul compliments him and helps him to grow and be strengthened. And so each person has their strengths, each has their weaknesses, and those complemented uh, one another. I'm not going to take the time to show how that all is. You could just, um, I think, just from your own reading, you probably recognize that that's the case. Fifth thing that I see about both Paul and Timothy is their willingness to sacrifice for the sake of the kingdom. You can see that in verse 3. And he took him and circumcised him. And I think that is a sacrifice. <laughs> it's not too comfortable. And yet, um, Timothy showed that he always put the kingdom of God first. Now, I should hasten to say here, this was not something he was compelled to do. Paul and his writings makes it clear he never compelled anybody uh, to get circumcised. This was something, in fact, voluntarism, I think, is an essential aspect of, uh, of good partnership. It provides far richer partnership than compulsion. But most good partnerships have at least one, if not both, of the partners willing voluntarily, without being asked, without having it in writing, to make sacrifices for the good of the whole. I think that's a, a good character quality. Verse 4, this is point F, indicates that the whole partnership was under authority. So when they went through the cities, they delivered, as they went through the cities, they delivered to them the decrees to keep which were determined by the apostles and elders at Jerusalem. Paul modeled to others what it meant to live under authority. I know people who, they want everybody else to submit to them, but they're not willing to submit to anybody themselves. 
And Paul did not model that. He modeled being under authority. If you're a young woman who is looking for a husband, you need to find out, is this man accountable? If he's not accountable, if he's not under authority, that ought to be a scary signal right there. But the verse I just read does bring up a question. If the decrees of Jerusalem said that circumcision must not be imposed on the Gentiles, why did Paul circumcise Timothy? He absolutely refused to circumcise Titus. There was a huge debate in Acts chapter 15 that we've looked at. So why does he do it here? Is this an inconsistency? Is he compromising? Let me read Galatians 2, where Paul uh, relates the situation of Titus a few weeks or months earlier. Galatians 2, 3 through 5. Yet not even Titus, who was with me, being a Greek, was compelled to be circumcised. And this occurred because of false brethren secretly brought in who came in by stealth to spy out our liberty, which we have in Christ, that they might bring us into bondage, to whom we did not yield submission even for an hour, that the truth of the gospel might continue with, it, uh, with you. Now, some people said Paul's consistent. Let me just make some very quick observations just for your information of why this is not a compromise. He understood very clearly. I think the difference between legalism, which was what was going on in Acts 15, and being all things to all men. First, the reason for requiring circumcision in both cases is quite, quite different. With Titus, they were trying to compel him as a test case to be uh, circumcised. And in Acts 15, verse 1, there was a group who said, you've you got to be circumcised to be saved. In Acts 15, verse 5, there's another group that says, you've got to be circumcised to be a member of the church. And that council said, no, neither is true. You can be in the church, you can be saved without being circumcised. That's a totally different reason with Timothy. With Timothy, he's getting circumcised so that they can be more effective in ministering to Jews. Quite different reason. Uh, secondly, it was voluntary, not imposed. Third, Timothy was partially Jewish in his background. Titus was 100% Greek. Fourth, Neither Paul nor Titus used circumcision to exclude Gentiles from the church. And then fifth, we've already seen Paul has had no problem with himself and other people observing on, a, on a, an optional basis, observing Jewish ceremonial laws. He said, no problem. So long as you Jews, as you're celebrating that, don't think it's essential to Christianity and don't use it to exclude Gentiles and say that the church is is uh, not composed of Israel and Jew together. And so there really is no contradiction. Finally, the result of this partnership is seen in verse 5. So the churches were strengthened in the faith and increased in number daily. And I think this is such a beautiful tribute to the power of a good partnership in ministry. God's blessing everything that they did. And that's what we want. We want the Lord's blessing. Now, of course, none of that could happen unless they were rooted and grounded in Christ, unless He is the senior partner uh, in their ministry. 2 Corinthians 6, verse 1, in one translation, speaks of us as being God's partners. 1 Peter 4, 13 speaks of being partners of Christ. Hebrews 3, 14 says we have become partners with Christ. And when you think about it, that, those are absolutely amazing statements. To be partners with Christ? I mean, if there's any unequal yoking, this is the ultimate unequal yoking for us to be partnered with Christ. I mean, we can do nothing without Him. 
And yet, in His grace, He has made provision to lift us up. He says His yoke is easy. Why is it easy? Because we're unequally yoked. He's the one pulling that yoke, right? Uh, uh, and uh, because He is the senior partner, uh, he, he helps us out. Though He needs nothing, He has made provision so that we are indispensable to His kingdom. Even though He could do everything that needed to be done, including regenerating everybody that needed to be regenerated, just like that, He could send His angels... Instead, He has chosen to be partners with us or as 1 Corinthians 3, 9 words it, God's fellow workers. God's fellow workers. That, that's just a staggering concept. It ought to humble you into the dust when you consider God stooping Himself to be your fellow worker, to be uh, in this kind of a partnership with you. And yet, what a privilege it is. What a comfort. Now, let me relate a story in ending. F.B. Meyer uh, wrote about two Germans who wanted to climb the Matterhorn. And they hired three guides, uh, very professional guides, and began their ascent of the steepest and the most slippery part of the Matterhorn. Men roped themselves together in this order. There was the, the chief guide, the traveler, <coughs> guide, traveler, and guide. And they had gone up uh, part of the way, and the last guy, who was a guide actually, quite a professional, fell off of the, the, the side of the ice and uh, they were able to hold on for a while because they had cut little niches that their feet were sticking into, but they weren't able to hold on long enough and then <clears throat> two more fell and finally there was only one guy up there. That top guy had driven a, a spike deep into the ice and so he was able to wrap the rope around, keep them all on until finally they were able to get uh, uh, their footing again. And F.B. Meyer concluded his story by drawing this spiritual application. He said, I'm like one of those men who slipped, but thank God I am bound in a living partnership to Christ. And because He stands, I will never perish. It's Christ's unequal partnership with us that enables us to overcome the mistakes that we make in our partnerships down here below. Maybe you've blown it with your wife this past week and you've uh, said things or done things that you ought not to have done. It's because of His partnership with us. You can be forgiven. You can be empowered. You can move on. And you can forgive each other as well. It's because of His senior partnership. Now, that does not mean that when you're looking for a partner that you can just ignore the issue of looking at qualifications. You know, what kind of good mountain guides are we going to have? You know, what kind of good partners are we going to have in this expedition? If we take seriously the, the, the principles that we've looked at in this verse, we're going to save ourselves a lot of, um, uh, of heartache and, and grief. But overarching everything is the importance of making sure we are solidly connected to Jesus, who is the author and finisher of our faith. Amen. Let's close in prayer. Father, we thank You that You have put us into this secure position of being in partnership with Christ. We're not worthy to even be slaves. And yet You have called us to be sons and daughters and uh, joint heirs with Christ. Father, it's an amazing thing. And we glory in You and we worship You and we praise You for this privilege. And I pray, Father, that we would taste richly of Your grace and through Your grace uh, we would see uh, our partnerships in life transformed whether we have made mistakes in the partnerships already, may we uh, minister into these partnerships Your grace, which is greater than all of our sin. 
Where sin abounds, grace abounds much more. And Father, I pray that You would make this church to be stronger and the next generation to be stronger than we have uh, been able to be. And we pray all of these things in Christ's name. Amen.